Good evening. I'm always inclined on the second day to congratulate you again for making it through the second day because often the second is, is uh, I don't want to say swampier because we're over, maybe overusing it, but it's sometimes swampier than the first. And I know many of you have settled down a lot, but, um, but it can be uh, even bumpier. And that's why often on this night, uh, we usually highlight at some point in the talk and sometimes exclusively in the talk, highlight the, the various difficulties that arise in our practice. Just so you know that it's completely uh, par for the course or lawful that uh, this day you would, uh, and as you go along in the first several days, as the light of your attention gets stronger, you actually... Uh, create the conditions for more challenges to present themselves. This passage from Bhante Gunaratna may give you a sense of of, um, validation for what you're experiencing. He says, somewhere in the process of meditation, you will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy. (laughs) Your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. No problem. You are not any crazier than you were yesterday. It has always been this way and you never noticed. So that may not seem like good news. But it is facing the truth of how it is that becomes our springboard, as the springboard to uh, nirvana, springboard to awakening. The Buddha said something to the effect of dukkha, uh, that which is hard to bear, is the springboard to awakening. Others have spoken of this. This is from Francois Fenelon, I guess you pronounce it, from 1651. So, old news. As light increases, we, are see, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We are amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. We never could have believed that we had harbored such things, and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear. But while our faults diminish the light by which we see them waxes brighter and we are filled with horror. Bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. And Hafiz, so in such a lovely way, said, how did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. So even though we may be experiencing a lot of the difficulties, it's actually the sign that your hearts and your minds are opening. I remember in one long practice period, I felt as though my heart was as tight as a, I don't even have a good metaphor, it was like a rock. 
And the first thought that went through my mind was, I have such a closed heart. And then I realized that the, the fact that it was so obvious and so apparent was that I was opening through, my mind was, heart was opening through these calcified layers of fear and tension, ill will. And that it was actually in the process of opening. It wasn't that I had such a closed heart. I was just opening through, um, through the various uh, contractions. So, so you may notice your heart feel as though it's shutting down, but actually you're probably opening. So how did we get so crazy? How did we become so mad? Having these maniacal minds racing moment by moment. Everywhere but here. You could blame it on our cultural conditioning. If you think about it, what, is the, what are the operating instructions we get every day? Wouldn't you say the operating instructions is think all day, depend on thought, feed the wanting mind, gratify every desire. What else? Um, hold on tight. Take everything personally. If that isn't a recipe for constriction and contraction, and what, what, is the, what happens when we're contracted? Where's, where is all that vital energy to go when we're all bound up with, with the fruits of, of what we've practiced? It expresses itself as this discharge of what one researcher said is 65,000 thoughts that we have every day and 90% are repeats from the day before. (laughs) This is just the effect of our past actions. Last night, Mary Grace reminded us, even though she covered a lot of a lot of the, the heart of the Dharma, but she encapsulated it in that beautiful little passage of nothing to do, nowhere to go, no one to be. Just in such a pithy way, reminding us that not one of us, no matter how far we have wandered, not one of us, no matter who we imagine ourselves to be, not one of us needs to lift out of this instant to find relief. That the reminder, no one to be, that you, you already are what you're looking for. And it, it's not, and you've been missing it because your mind has been going out of yourself in search. It's been going into Uh, your plans, your memories, regrets. And it's not so problematic that our mind thinks all these things. I think that's, it's really natural. It's that attention doesn't seem to go along with it. And we become absorbed, lost, incarnated in, in our thoughts. 
once we can recognize, once we can make that shift from being lost and completely absorbed in a a virtual reality, make the shift from being lost to noticing, then all those thoughts, all the kinds of thoughts, all the kinds of feelings, all the kinds of difficulties become in that very moment of noticing, they become our manure. They become the cause of our awakening. They become something that we can actually befriend, get used to, work with, everything. Everything is more workable when we shift our sense of, you could say, shift our sense of identity uh, away from the, our imagination toward the, that natural capacity we have to know, to comprehend. And it is all fulfilled and realized right here, as she said so beautifully, here. Someone asked Eckhart Tolle, said, I can't believe that I could ever reach a point where I'm completely free of my problems. Can you imagine what he said? Well, here's what he said. You're right. You can never reach that point because you are at that point now. There is no salvation in time. You cannot be free in the future. Presence is the key to freedom. So you can only be free now. So in this moment of presence, you could say, we don't, I don't think any of us, when we're really present, has any evidence for, for the, the bondage, for the, the level of suffering that we usually um, think of ourselves as having. Where is it now when we're here? If we, if we don't look back and we don't look ahead, what do we find? You may find some painful sensations, you may find some challenging moods, different thoughts. But the whole complexion of our sense of ourselves changes when we're right here. And we didn't go anywhere. There was nothing done. All we did for a moment is come out of the tangle of our, um, our thoughts about ourselves. And this is really the function of mindfulness, to continue to wake us up to the simplicity of being here. The whole of the Buddha's teaching comes down to, there's a a passage that he used called Yata Bhutta Yanadasana. Yata Bhutta Yanadasana. Basically is what um, Mary Grace has been saying, the way things are. The real translation is knowledge and vision of things as they are. Or some have translated as knowledge and vision of things as they have come to be. That that is the heart of where our 
liberation and our awakening lies in opening to with, and having knowledge and vision of things as they have come to be right now. Yata Bhuta. That is the heart of the matter. Because it is seeing things as they are. It is opening to whatever predicament that I'm in, in real time, not some other time. It is, it is in this light shining on my experience right now that is the springboard to awakening. It is, in fact, the awakening itself. Many people have talked in the, over the course of the retreat about their noticing that they're holding their breath. How many of you are holding your breath or controlling your breath? How many of you have noticed that? And what happened in the moment that you noticed that? Did you keep holding it in that moment? When you saw that and experienced that as it was with the light of attention wide open, you became part of your knowledge and vision of things as they have come to be in that moment. What did you do? You didn't just keep holding on to your breath and controlling it. Quite naturally, because the intrinsic or natural intelligence that flows from seeing things as they are, probably your body, I know my body, as soon as I notice that I'm holding my breath or that I'm feeling grumpy or contentious, the moment I notice that, if it's, been, if it's been a filter, an attitude that's been out of my consciousness, the moment it's recognized, something in this entire mind-body process, the whole organism goes, ah. Not one of us, when we see clearly, wants to hold on. It doesn't make any sense when we see clearly to hold on. It just makes sense to relax. And we don't even have to deal with that cognitively. It's something that happens naturally. It is self, things are self-liberating because of the natural intelligence that is the very function of our mind when it knows how things are. So when we see how things are, our mind is released from clinging. Clinging, clinging, holding on, stuck, fixated, identified. All of that is based on misperception, misidentification, ignorance, not seeing clearly. So you can hear from this that we're not here to create some other reality. We're here to actually see how things have come to be. To dispel wherever we see it in our lives and in our minds, to dispel ignorance. On the night of the Buddha's awakening, and Mary Grace told some of the story, and maybe I'll back up a little and tell a little bit more. You know, after he, one of the things that he came to to know as it is, which seems a little bit bizarre, that he could be 29 years old and not really have understood or seen clearly the fact of sickness, old age, and death. You know, he saw those so-called heavenly messengers that 
kind of woke him up. And he saw the, the renunciate, somebody who was living a different way. But what really shook him out of his, his stupor, his obliviousness, his, um, his looking for love in all the wrong places was this reality that, came, that he came face to face with, with that old person, that uh, extremely ill person and that dying person. And that shock that he felt at the futility of trying to find anything reliable, anything constant in a life of changing conditions, which is the most obvious truth that's born of seeing sickness, old age, and death, that things change. We are born into this world, and one dictionary, Wiley's Dictionary, said it like this. They said the the definition of birth is the leading cause of death. (laughs) And we all know that, but until it actually hits us in the heart, when we realize maybe... We don't have time. So I don't know how many of you were, had the, had, were aware of the, the commencement speech that Steve Jobs gave at Stanford while he was some years ago, where he said that death is the ultimate uh, change agent. It's the, it, it's, it, brings, it brings our reality, things as they have come to be, things as they are, into such clear focus. And yet we do everything in our power in this world to uh, avoid death. We, and the Buddha even talked about this in his day. He talked about the three prides that we tend to live with, called the pride in youth. And our culture is such a cult of youth and uh, glorification of youth. The pride in youth, pride in health, the trillion-dollar industry of keeping our health uh, up. The Dalai Lama has a... Oh, I don't, yeah, here I did bring it. Well, this is actually a little bit more of a view of, of all of us, and this is part of our ignorance. It's not seeing what we're doing, but this is what the Dalai Lama said. When asked what surprised him most about humanity, he answered, man. <laughs> because he sacrifices his health in order to make money, Then he sacrifices money to recuperate his health. And then he's so anxious about the future that he does not enjoy the present, the result being that he does not live in the present or the future. He lives as if he's never going to die and then dies having never really lived. So this reality of the three, the heavenly messengers, heavenly because they wake us up, they led the Buddha to that, that path of practice. And Mary Grace spoke about how he, he was looking for much more, I don't know, I can't remember how she put it, but he was obviously not going to find it in the, in the conventional changing conditions of um, the things that don't last very long. He saw the futility of that. And he realized that he was going to die. He couldn't rely on his body and he couldn't rely on his, couldn't rely on anything that's changing. And so it led him to that deep question, where is a reliable refuge to be found? Where can I find 
the meaning of all this. If I'm just born, I get old, I get sick and die, and I get all this stuff and have all these experiences, and then they, they pass away, what's it all about? Where's the heart in that? Well, the sneak preview is the heart is in realizing that. And that with the realization of that truth, being in harmony with that truth, there's great relief. But being ignorant of that truth, one, as one Tibetan Lama put it, one wanders endlessly astray in samsara's vicious cycle with false hopes and dreams and just this endless search. This is also very commonly seen in our culture. This is a, what, how Sogyal Rinpoche describes it. He says, Sometimes I think that the greatest achievement of modern culture is its brilliant selling of samsara. Samsara is this endless wandering. Samsara and its barren distractions. Modern society seems to me a celebration of all the things that lead away from the truth, make truth hard to live for, and discourage people from even believing that it exists. And to think this all springs from a civilization that claims to adore life, but actually starves it of any real meaning, that endlessly speaks of making people happy, but in fact blocks their way to the source of real joy. This modern samsara feeds off an anxiety and depression that it fosters and trains us all in and carefully nurtures with a consumer machine that needs to keep us greedy to keep going. Samsara is highly organized, versatile, and sophisticated. It assaults us from every angle with its propaganda and creates an almost impregnable environment of addiction around us. The more we try to escape, the more we seem to fall into the traps Traps it is so ingenious at setting for us. As this Lama that I've just quoted said, mesmerized by the sheer variety of perceptions, beings wander endlessly astray in samsara's vicious cycle, obsessed then with false hopes, dreams, and ambition, which promise happiness but lead only to misery. We're like people crawling through an endless desert, dying of thirst. And all that samsara holds out to us to drink is a cup of salt water designed to make us even thirstier. So the Buddha saw through this and it turned him, it turned his mind, turned his mind toward the Dharma toward away from the gravitational field of, of that endless uh, delusion, that endless seeking for things that, that can't really give us any satisfactory relief to the potential of an inner, um, an inner refuge. But then as the story goes, he attained very quickly, states of great happiness and joy, the bliss of concentration. Sounds nice, doesn't it? But then something he saw after he experienced the bliss of concentration, what he often described as, or what he described as unmixed happiness, super mundane happiness, His mind was free of any confusion or any hindrances. Sounds great. But then he saw 
that it was no different than sickness, old age, and death. That even that most rarefied, refined state of mind that many meditators spend a lot of time trying to have. Have you noticed? He saw that that was also subject to uh, change and impermanence. It's called dukkha, unsatisfactory, unreliable, because of its changing nature. And so it's only then that he shifted to knowledge and vision of things as they are. Instead of looking for some special experience, instead he just studied everything carefully to, to see the reality of things. And he used some of that concentration. Otherwise, we wouldn't speak of concentration. We wouldn't think of collecting and composing. We wouldn't think of tranquility. But the, these things are valuable. And Mary Grace spoke of I forgot what you said about what he thought of that after when he um, after his concentration period. Something about his father. What what did you say about his oh, father? I was talking about that experience when he was a child watching his father. He was a child watching his father. Right. Yeah. Well, that he, kind of presence. That kind of presence. But also at that same moment, he realized because he was very comfortable, he was very contented, very tranquil saw that tranquility and ease is a very essential part of the awakening process. And he realized because he had been starving himself and he had been doing self-mortification, been doing all these kinds of crazy things, thinking he could somehow liberate his heart that way by denying this world of, of changing conditions, the world of form. But all it did was make him sick and tired. So he saw that there's a balance. There's, one, there's a middle way that transcends both indulgence in the world of changing conditions or avoidance. It goes beyond both. and sees those conditions the way they are. Yatabhuta, see things as they have come to be. So at that point, that he, as he began to see more clearly how things are, his mind began to relax. And just bear witness to the flow of experience. The same thing that you're doing here. Paying attention to the flow of experience. We need a little bit of composure, a little steadiness to do that. But then it's really about noticing what it is that's happening. And not just noticing what's happening, but noticing the behavior of what's happening. Noticing for ourselves when a sensation or a pain comes into our, our consciousness, into our body. When a mood arises, normally what do we do? The opposite of knowledge and things as they are. We distract ourselves. We try to figure it out. We think about it. We, um, we just do anything but feel it. So I think I mentioned in one of the Q&As, we're wonderful at thinking about our situation, even our experiences often taking the second-hand version that's playing in our mind as what's actually happening, and we're not actually feeling it. So when we're mindful, we simply experience things in as uh, childlike, simple, bare, non-interfering way as possible. And quite naturally, 
if we are present with what's occurring, you see that any sensation that you feel, any mood, any thought, all those 65,000 thoughts, where did they go? We see that everything has the nature to arise and to pass away. And if we're in harmony with that truth, we relax. If we're fighting that, we go for cosmetic surgery. (laughs) We go to the mall as our source of relief. We go to the refrigerator. We go to things mistakenly under misperception, non-clear seeing. Go to things, to people, to situations that cannot give us the relief that we're looking for. And when we actually, hopefully in the course of a retreat, we stay with the actuality of our experience, the very experience that's even painful, that we allow into our consciousness, it has a an alchemical effect, you could say. The very thing that we thought we needed to run from the plague, like just feeling really grumpy or angry or even intense pain, it often becomes the cause of of tenderness, of self-compassion. We also... it becomes the cause of understanding. We see that whatever it is that we thought was the plague, it's a changing condition. It's like the weather. We thought whatever was very personal just comes and goes by itself. It's doing its own thing. That, that, that when that sadness arose today, anybody feel sad? I know people felt sad. We become aware that sadness is sad. That there's not a person who's sad, they're sad. That arises, takes shape in the body-mind, completely unbidden and uninvited, and it passes away. And in that process, completely welcoming and opening to whatever that is, that very difficult, what can be a, a difficult feeling when it's unattended to, it becomes the cause of wisdom and actually becomes the cause of our heart uh, being more at ease. So when the Buddha did this over and over again, with a lot of concentration, his mind got brighter and brighter and brighter. His heart more open, wide as, as wide as the world. And he saw so clearly the difference between all the, the dramatization that goes in our mind and just the what in Zen is called the suchness of things. That... That when we see something, there's just what we see. It's not that complicated. When we hear something, it's just the herd. When, it's, when we smell something, it's just smell. When we taste, it's just taste. When we feel something, when we think about something, it's just thinking. That's really the whole of our life. That's it. It's not as when we have knowledge and things and knowledge and vision of things as they are life is inherently simple what complicates our life is the is ignorance and confusion is what the buddha called the second noble truth the cause of suffering
That's one of the three root causes of suffering. Ignorance, delusion. So as the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree and experienced his heart opening, his mind opening, he, that the knowledge dawned on him of the, the nature of reality. And he, he realized the fruit of, of letting go of, of all of his confusion and began to have a series of insights and they're described as the three watches of the night after his awakening. During those three watches of the night, he saw with very refined vision and who knows whether this is true and you don't have to believe this, but he saw his own past lives, the birth and death of beings according to their karma, their actions, and the liber- and mostly the liberating insight into how suffering in our lives is born of ignorance and ends through wisdom. So that's what he realized on the night of his awakening. So what are we ignorant of? What are we ignorant of? Anybody willing to just throw a word into the air? What are we ignorant True nature of reality. So what's the true nature of reality? Five skandhas and consciousness. Nothing else. Five skandhas, yes. Nothing else. Beautiful. Well, he didn't... He, he, of course, he said the nature of reality is five skandhas, and he emphasized a lot that our whole experience is made up of these five skandhas. Does everybody know what the five skandhas are? Materiality, form, feeling, mental formations, perception, and consciousness. Actually, consciousness is the fifth. And these are flashing often on every moment. That's the totality of everything. In that, there's no me, no you, no self at all. There's just what there is these five skandhas. But he didn't go right to this teaching. First he thought whatever he had realized was too subtle. But then he saw with further vision and knowledge that there were those like us with just a little bit of dust on their eyes. If those who, if pointed if turned toward the direction of knowledge and vision of things as they are, could realize the same fruit as he did, realize the same sense of freedom, relaxation of the heart, and this boundless responsiveness, this boundless compassion. And he thought of people who he knew who were most sincere, who really really wanted to find out what uh, what what was true and what would be what would bring a reliable sense of relief that same refuge that he had sought that were filled with that same longing that same holy desire that he had and you notice i use the word desire here because it was, there was no doubt that there was an urge in his heart a longing a desire for deliverance for freedom so the tendency in the teachings is to 
clump all kinds of desires uh, together and say, somehow get rid of desire. But if there was not desire, you wouldn't be here. But we are invited to explore the nature of desire and to explore those desires that lead to more desire, that endless wandering, and those desires that are onward leading toward letting go, toward awakening, toward the freeing of our hearts from confusion and bondage. And that's what we are here, you could say, we're here to discern the difference between those. Because if we don't know the difference, we will, we will use our practice, we will use our lives and have a confused view, as I spoke about the first night, the opening night, a confused view about what happiness is. The Buddha talked about two kinds of happiness. He talked about the happiness of getting what you want, the happiness of all the kinds of amazing kinds of pleasures, the happiness of our good company. He, he encapsulated that in what he called lokiya sukha, worldly happiness. All kinds of pleasure. And that, that to be able to have that kind of pleasure, it's a beautiful thing. It depends on how you live your life and that you're conscious, your senses are open and you're not constantly burdened with the effects of having uh, lied, cheated, and stealed, stolen and, and, and gone to obliviousness through intoxicants, that there is available to us a whole array of pleasures in this world. He called Lokiya Sukha. He also described Lokiya Sukha as the happiness of slavery, the happiness of bondage. So the tendency is to mistakenly uh, associate our, our freedom with it. And really that kind of p- happiness, as wonderful as it is, unless we understand things as they are, w- the tendency is to spend our whole life searching after it. Because each pleasurable experience gives way to its passing and leaves in its wake more desire. Any of you notice that? So then there's the other side, what he called Lokutra Sukha. Lokutra means, Lokia means worldly. Lokutra means above the world or beyond the world. It's the happiness of freedom, the happiness of uh, unconditioned happiness, a well-being that doesn't depend on what's going on. And at the night of the of the Buddha's awakening, and I'm sure you've even touched this in, at moments today when you may have had those really unpleasant experiences, but you were attentive to it. And you saw it come, you saw it go. And you, you felt a sense of well-being, even though there was this whole uh, mass of pain or reactivity, but just the seeing of it come and go, there was a sense of, of balance and freedom. This is a a glimpse of this other kind of happiness. So the encouragement is that we aim for this other kind of happiness. Be clear about be clear about that. But we also need to be encouraged to turn toward and we can't just be encouraged by a Dharma talk. It requires opening to things the way they are. 
And so the Buddha didn't start with this, the wonder of, of unconditional happiness. He started by saying, this is what must be seen clearly in your life. He started with those four noble truths that Mary Grace mentioned last night. He said, if you are born, not only is the definition of birth the leading cause of death, the definition of birth is the leading cause, which means no one is immune, the leading cause of all kinds of discomfort, all kinds of uneasiness, all kinds of, of disharmony, all kinds of friction. And it comes in the form of mentally is not getting what we want, not wanting what we get. Anybody here not have that experience? So, I, so I'm in the right crowd here. If you are born, you will experience the three kinds of, of dukkha. And often the, the uh, conventional translation of dukkha is suffering. And that's really not a very good translation. Because even, um, because you can have uneasiness, unsatisfactoriness. You can have all kinds of, of um, disharmony. You can experience all of that, and you will. Everybody does. If you're born, you have that. That's being born is the leading cause of all these things. You will have this, but the suffering about that, which has to do with the way that you relate to it, is completely optional. And that is determined, the suffering is determined by how we meet these inevitable, uh, the inevitable disharmony that accompanies every single person's life. Nobody is immune. And we talk about this, but this is not our MO to acknowledge that life has stress in it, has friction. It is to be in contention with this reality, to continually dream in some way of a perfect reality, of a perfect life with no messes, no dirty bowls, as Ed Brown says. No conflicts, no fights. And, and it's the unwillingness to welcome these conditions as they present themselves that keeps our life in that cycle of endless becoming, what the Buddha called bhava, that endless toppling forward into the future that never arrives. Because as we know, time is only now. Future doesn't even exist. There's no such thing as tomorrow. It's just an idea arising in the present moment. Anonymous story about this first noble truth that there is stress, things that are difficult in life and the way that we ordinarily attend to them. Once a farmer went to tell the Buddha about his problems. 
told the Buddha about his troubles farming, how either droughts or monsoons made his work difficult. He told the Buddha about his wife, how even though he loved her, there were certain things about her he wanted to change. Likewise with his children. Yes, he loved them, but they weren't turning out quite the way he wanted. When he was finished, he asked how the Buddha could help him with his problems. The Buddha said, I'm sorry, I can't help you. What do you mean, railed the farmer? You're supposed to be a great teacher. The Buddha replied, sir, it's like this. All human beings have 83 problems. It's a fact of life. Sure, a few problems may go away now and then, but soon enough others will arise. So we'll always have 83 problems. Farmer responded indignantly. Then what's the good of all your teaching? The Buddha replied, my teaching can't help with the 83 problems, but perhaps it can help with the 84th problem. What's that, asked the farmer. The 84th problem is that we don't think we should have any problems. We have to get real, as Jennifer Wellwood says in her poem called The Dakini Speaks. My friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything can be lost that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully like human right beings. But please, let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us, and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child she seems cruel, but she is only wild, and her compassion exquisitely precise, brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth, She strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. We're not children anymore. Anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. Contrast this with Woody Allen, who says, I don't mind dying, just I don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> or I think that uh, Pablo Neruda had a sense of humor about it. He says, what we know comes to so little, what we presume is so much, what we learn so laborious, we can only ask questions and die. Better save our pride for the city of the dead in the day of the carrion. There, when the wind shifts through the hollows of your skull, It will show you all manner of enigmatical things, whispering truths in the void where your ears used to be. (laughs) The Buddha suggested, as the great physician that he is said to have been, as he diagnosed our condition, he also offered a prescription. He said, this must be understood, this must be welcomed. Things as they have come to be. Things as they are, yata Buddha. But he said we're like children playing in a house that's burning all around us. And that we just have to grow up. Have to grow up.
he didn't stop with just welcoming the uh, truth of our conditioning. He said what turns that inevitable stress and unsatisfactoriness, unreliability that, that is part of every single person's life, what turns that into suffering is that deeply conditioned habit of wanting things to be different than the way they are that expresses itself as craving, as clinging, as attachment. We hold to misperceptions, three fundamental misperceptions. We hold to the, we cling to the misperception that what is impermanent is permanent. What is what is unreliable, ungraspable, unsatisfactory, we hold to the idea that it's, that it's reliable or satisfactory. What is not personal, not self, not me, not mine, which is even this body and all its moods and thoughts, everything that we misperceive as me and mine, it's not self. And this ignorance, this misperception, leads to a clinging and a craving and an endless search for relief, innocently. But that expresses itself as the hindrance that you probably have noticed a lot on this retreat, the desire for some kind of pleasure. How many of you have waited for the meals? How about waited for the bell to ring? As though it was the secret to happiness. Some even wait for the Dharma talk. <laughs> Look what you get. <laughs> Some wait for it to be over. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> now I'm unhappy. <laughs> but I have a, I've got the, the, now I have the, the cause of unhappiness someone just passed to me. They said, I recently discovered that there is a physiological reason for unhappiness. It's when the optic nerve gets crossed with the rectal nerve <laughs> and it gives one a shitty outlook. <laughs> See, when, when I'm dying, I, we need a little entertainment. This is the m- way the mind works. I didn't really do it for that reason. I had always wanted to share that with you. (laughs) It's a tremendous opportunity here to notice how much the wanting mind plays through our consciousness and colors, when it goes unnoticed, colors our experience as though it's not okay and that the only way that I can find relief is if something, if I get something or if something ends like a Dharma talk. And this is a, this is, uh, this is born of confusion because it is, and it's innocent because when we do hear that bell, when you've been waiting for the bell to ring, there's often a feeling of great relief, a feeling of ease. Now some people occasionally are, say, Darn, I, and then there's more of a clinging to what was going on in the sitting. But often, when there is a wanting for the bell to ring, 
that desire, that bell becomes this, the source of all happiness. And the bell rings and you've experienced the relief and you think, yeah, it really did make me happy. But what we miss in that, in that little transaction because of the lack of clear perception, the lack of seeing things as they are, what we miss is it's not the bell that gives the sense of relief. What gives the sense of relief? What gives the sense of relief is the falling away, the passing of that feeling of wanting. That even though our desires produce on the surface lots of pleasant feeling, when I plan a vacation, I have a lot of pleasant feeling. When I plan my weekend, it's got a lot of, lot of pleasure associated with it, but it's very superficial. If I look what the underlying feeling is of being in a state of waiting, wanting, hoping, um, expecting, any of these forms of the wanting mind, the underlying experience is a state of tension, a state of being hostage to what happens next. Instead of the, the freedom to be right where I am. So what do we do? We, we don't necessarily get rid of the wanting mind. We use it as our manure. We use it as our practice. It is our path. We feel, we take our attention from the bell the moment we feel ourselves waiting for it, or the meal, if you happen to be aware of it. Take our attention from the object. They're endless. They are absolutely endless. We take our attention from the object and we feel the state of wanting. When that wanting meets the light of attention, as with all mental states, when the light of awareness shines on that, that feeling of wanting cannot withstand awareness. It will show itself to be a changing condition like the weather. Wanting comes, wanting goes, and that desire hasn't necessarily been fulfilled and it's possible to feel the relief that you, were, that you were holding out for right on the spot. And this is the, the encouragement is to do this with your whole life. Stop postponing. Stop being held hostage to a future that never arrives. How we do that is by paying attention to all those ways that we are conditioned to go out of ourselves. Use them to bring you, you right back here. Become interested in the wanting mind. And the flip side, be interested in the Vipassana romance that Mary Grace spoke of. How many of you had one so far? You can admit it. Everybody does from time to time. Okay, you don't have to. <laughs> if you haven't, I'll just give you a little sense. Maybe you don't know what it is yet. It's somebody produced in your mind, someone crossing your path, may have been the kind of shoes they were wearing or the way they walk or the, the way they eat or whatever it might be. They crossed your, they entered into your consciousness. It produced a pleasant feeling. You had immediately seeing them or experiencing them was associated in your mind with a, with a, a yummy feeling. And that yummy feeling went unrecognized and unnoticed. And when it goes unnoticed, 
it's immediately followed by liking, and then liking unnoticed moves quickly into wanting, and then needing, and then got to having. I've got to have. And pretty soon the pressure of that, this is craving in action, the pressure of that then spawns all manner of fantasy of endless walks on the beach, marriage, (laughs) vacations, divorce, children, whatever it is. Regret. (laughs) All within the span of a few minutes, or a few seconds even. And it can be quite dramatic. It's a wonderful opportunity to see in such full relief the, the intensity of the wanting mind. But we have all kinds of ways of noticing it on the retreat. And the same is true with the reverse, the aversive mind. This is a, another form of, of craving, another form of clinging to, uh, to, um, for things to be different than the way they are. That vipassana vendetta, somebody crosses your path, triggers an unpleasant feeling. And then that feeling is followed by dislike, followed by they shouldn't do that, followed by hating, followed by a whole proliferation of, of that person is the cause of all my unhappiness. Instead of that one's going to be the cause of my happiness, this one's the cause of my unhappiness. And if they would change hostage, if they would change, then I could be happy. How many of you have noticed when someone uh, makes a little extra noise in the meditation hall? Isn't it interesting how it triggers a little bit of aversion, irritation? It's a great opportunity. And how the whole story of, of me gets spawned and how it becomes all about me. And what really happened was there was a sound, there was a movement, There was an unpleasant feeling that came and then the rest is history. It just, it takes off. And we start living in the the dream and the narrative of things and not in the immediate reality. So this cause, the Buddha suggested, this cause of suffering, this craving that expresses itself in craving for pleasure, to get rid of unpleasantness, craving for existence, for for becoming, for being someone, as Mary Grace described the other day, this tendency toward toppling forward. And even in its most, in its aversive form, extreme aversive form, the suicidal ideation, wanting everything to stop. So it's actually a, we can become seriously entranced and fixated. The Buddha's suggestion for this is let go, abandon it. And how do we let go? We see it. We let ourselves feel that craving. Soon as I notice that my mind and body is in a state of craving, take an interest in that, curious about it, more often than not, it very quickly gives way to its changing nature. It may come back again, but it starts, we, our attention allows us to cut through that that certainty that our mind feels that I have to satisfy this desire. I have to get rid of this thing, this person, this situation in order to be happy. 
we can see that it's driven by this mental reaction, this craving in the form of grasping version. So these are two things that you can pay a lot of attention to. And then the other hindrances of restlessness and worry, you can notice those. Torpor, doubt, all the kinds of states of mind that tend to make it really hard to practice, once we bring them into the light of attention, they become our, our way home. They become the cause of our, of our sense of presence. They become the cause of our compassion. When you feel how painful it is to be in a state of, of craving, to be in a state of aversion, to be in a state of worry, to be so dull that, you can't, that you're not functioning very, very well, or to fall into to incessant doubt and confusion. Why am I here? What am I doing? I don't know how to do it. Any of you ever have that? To be able to notice, oh, this is doubt, and to feel its impact, it becomes the cause of awakening. So use everything. Because this is what makes possible the third noble truth, that there is an end to suffering. And the Buddha suggested this must be realized. There's freedom. And the very cause of our freedom is seeing things clearly. And there's a path. And that path, you are, um, you are, the encouragement is to cultivate it, is to, is to create it out of the fabric of your own hindrances. Use your hindrances as your path. Use your attention as your path. Use your mind and body wisely to wake up, not to, not to just keep checking out. And I know you're already doing that, but I have to say it anyway. And remember that uh, you don't have to leave this moment to do that. And it's fulfilled by every moment of mindfulness. And you can't worry about the one that hasn't happened yet. And you can't worry about the one before. There's only this one. So even though we describe this this path of awakening through the, through the eightfold path, through the purification of view, the purification of, of action, the purification of mind. It's fulfilled the, just this moment. If you're mindful, you are traversing, you're traveling the entire eightfold path in every moment. You're not causing harm. You're not engaged in unwise livelihood. You're practicing the wise effort. You're practicing wise mindfulness. You're practicing wise concentration, wise thought, and wise understanding. So a few short poems, to passages to end the, maybe just this one from Hafiz. Little tongue-in-cheek. Learn to recognize the counterfeit coins that may buy you just a moment of pleasure, but then drag you for days like a broken man behind a farting camel. (laughs) Because, as he continues in another poem, you carry all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Don't mix them but you carry all the ingredients to turn your existence into joy. Mix them, mix them. So let's just stay where you are, keep quiet for a moment, forget everything I just said.
May all beings have knowledge and vision of things as they are. May all beings be free. Thank you so much for your long, enduring attention. We have about 25 minutes for walking practice.